So verse 14 then becomes a bit of a transition and he's kind of carrying on from where he talked about now having the Spirit. And verse 14 says, For all who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. Now, one way of interpreting that is that if you're not walking after the Spirit, then you're not His child. If we do that, if that's the interpretation, what have we made salvation based on now? Your works. Your ability to walk after the Spirit. And we've completely denied this message of grace and righteousness and everything that Paul's been talking about up to this point. So that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about a condition that you need to be led by the Spirit in order to be sons of God. It's more of that the sons of God, these are the ones that would be led by the Spirit. Verse 15, For you have not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption, as sons which we cry out, Abba, Father. This is so great what he's doing here, because he's, he's emphasizing to you and I now the nature of the relationship we have with God. That he's not this taskmaster. He's, he's our king. He's our Lord. But what he really desires is to be this Abba Father. Now, it's, it's interesting, you know, you, you think of this word Abba, or Father even, and I don't know what goes through your mind. Because the reality is, every one of us has a different experience when it comes to a dad. Uh, for some people, they had a great dad. They had you know, a dad that was loving, was caring, that took that time. And then there's others whose dad was absent, or mean, or critical, or put them down. And so the idea there, you know, of, uh, when, I hear, when you hear the word father, that might cause you to recoil. Because you think of your daddy and you think, I don't want that kind of a God. So I don't know what kind of a God you have, or what kind of father you have. But when Jesus is saying here, or Paul's saying here, that, that the, the relationship we have with him is one of what we can call him Abba. The word Abba is, is literally baby talk for a Jew. I mean, if we had a little two-year-old Jewish child and their dad, then this little child would run around going, Abba, 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 Abba. Much like our kids go around saying, Dada, 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 Dada. It's, it's that kind of gibberish, baby talk, that this Abba is. That's what was so offensive when Jesus says, Abba, Father. That's too personal. You can't be that close. You need to show him respect. You know, nose in the dirt, three inches below the dirt line, by the way, and show him the proper respect because he's Lord God Almighty. Well, it's true he is, but he's also my Abba. Which means I get to go run and jump up into his lap and he holds his big strong arms around me. Because that's what he wants. I mean, think about it. What, what is God lacking? Does, does God need more money? Is He a little short on, on money this week? Does he, does he need a little bit more joy in His life? Maybe He needs an extra house or a boat or a bigger car. Is that what He needs? No. The only thing He wants is you. Because you're one of a kind. And that's what He desires, is you. Not to use you or to have you just as a slave to Him, but so that you'd be His child. 
that he'd love, that he'd embrace, that he could hold on to. In fact, he wanted you so much, he said, I'd rather die than be without you. Because that's what the cross says, right? I'd rather go on to that cross and die and go to hell than to be separated from you. That's the relationship we have with him. That's the love, that's the acceptance we have with him. It's not a God who's looking down his nose at you, thinking you've got to do better. You're not doing enough. It's not a God where he's saying, have you measured up to my checklist? I like how John Lynch put it. He says, you know, we created, you know, we couldn't handle God, so we created Santa Claus. Right? Because Santa Claus, right, he's got his list, checking it twice to see who's been naughty or nice. And isn't that kind of how we reduce God to? Where we've got this God who's got a list, who's checking to see who's been naughty or nice. And if you've been naughty, well, you're off the list, you got a lump of coal. But if you've been nice, then okay, he'll love you then. That's not God. This is a father who on your worst day and your worst moment loves you. Who's crazy about you. Who isn't going anywhere. That's the God we have. Yes? That previous verse that says those who are led by the Spirit bearing the sons of God. Mm-hmm. That be reference to, you know, there's a, I can't remember where in the Bible it talks about, I think it's Galatians, it says that slaves are only slaves for so long, but then sons, they, you know, they inherit all things. Like, is it that kind of idea that you're either a slave or a son? Um, no, I don't think that's what it is. Um, I think what he's saying is, um, you know, looking at the the verses before is talking about how those that are in Christ have the Spirit of God and those that don't are not. And so if you have Him, you're being led by Him and you're walking with Him. And now he's introducing this this deeper relationship with him, with God, which is that we're sons. So you're on the right track that, you know, we're not slaves. We're sons of God. And that's what he's trying to emphasize here. And, and so we've received not the spirit of slavery leading to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption, which we cry out, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. That's who we are. You know, I think that's, that's such a great verse because when people, people begin to doubt whether they're saved or not, one of the things I ask them, I, I say, well, what does God think of you? Ask God what he thinks of you. And, and what I'm looking for is for them to hear God's affirmation. Hear the Spirit of God testifying, telling them that they're children of God. I can't determine whether you're saved or not. That's not my position, not my job. It's God's job. And so I ask people, what's He saying to you about who you are? Conversely, if there's somebody who I, who I don't believe is saved, but they say, I've talked to God all my life, because that's one of those things that they do. And whenever someone says, I always talk to God, I know that's not true because nobody always talks to God. Um, But I'll ask them, okay, if you always pray, what does God say back to you? And if they're not saved, you know what they say? Nothing. Well, that's a sign. Because if you are His child, guess what He's going to do? He's going to talk with you. Because that's what He wants to do. He wants you. He wants that relationship. And so we're children of God. And verse 17 goes on, And if children, heirs also, 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Isn't this all good stuff? If indeed we suffer with Him so that we may be glorified with Him. Oh, this is going back to Romans 5 again. And in a way, we are kind of are. You know, we've kind of gone down this road. Remember I told you earlier, it's kind of sandwich, right? The first few verses of chapter 5 and the last few verses of chapter 8 kind of are the bread with the meat in between. Well, he's kind of been going down this journey. And now he's coming back out and coming back to this idea that, yeah, even in our trials, even in our suffering, we're, we're heirs of God. And if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. Let's think about that for a moment. What that means. And and to do that, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. In verse 13, we have Paul here. Paul is in prison at this point. He's chained to, uh, to one of the Praetorian guards in Rome. He can't go out on his missions journeys anymore. He can't go anywhere. He's just kind of trapped. And he's in this state of limbo. And he's writing to the church of Ephesus. And here's what's incredible. He says to them, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. That's really interesting to me. Let me read it again. He says, Therefore I ask you, you Ephesians, don't lose heart, don't get discouraged, don't lose hope at my tribulations on your behalf, so when I'm suffering for your sake, don't lose heart, don't get discouraged. Why? Because they are your glory. Now, when I first read that, I thought they're for your glory. Right? I'm suffering for your benefit. That my trials are going to pay out for your benefit, sort of thing, right? So yeah, I'm being persecuted for sharing the gospel, but in sharing the gospel, you take advantage. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say that the sufferings are for your glory. It says they are your glory. That the sufferings are glorious. That they are your glory. Well, that got me thinking. What does he mean by that? And it it began to occur to me that, you know, basically, the degree to which you're willing to suffer for someone shows the degree to which you love them. Think about you moms with little precious babies. Was there any suffering when you gave birth? (laughs) Abe's going, yeah, there was suffering. (laughs) She grabbed my hand real tight. (laughs) Was there suffering in labor? Every mom though afterwards says it was worth it when they hold that precious little baby. Right? I know because you went back and had a second or a third or a fourth. Because although there was a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow in in that labor... It was worth it for the joy that came with it. That's how much you love your kids. Right? To the degree to which you're suffering is the degree to which you're willing, or you're, you love them. And so what Paul's saying here is, you know, the degree to which I'm suffering is the degree to which I love you. It is, it, essentially, it gives value to you in my suffering. Does that make sense? Think about Jesus on the cross. All the suffering he went through. What does that do? What does that say about you and I? I have tremendous value in you, he says. I went to hell for you. I was beaten. I was abused. I was stripped naked. I was humiliated. I was left to die over a long, slow, painful period. 
And I'd do it all again if I had to because of you. That's how much you're worth to me. So suffering bestows value. Does that make sense? Let's go one more step then. Turn with me to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6 and 7. He says here, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. You're going through tribulations. You're going through suffering. Why? So that the proof of your faith, right? The trials that we're going through proves the fact that we're trusting in Him being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what's the revelation of Jesus Christ? What moment in history will that be? Yeah, the second coming of Christ. Have you ever pictured that day? Have you ever pictured that in your mind's eye? Him coming down the clouds? Got his whole armada of saints and angels behind him. I don't know if I'm on this side or that side, but I've always pictured I'm on this side. What an incredible sight that will be, right? I mean, if there's ever been a day that belongs to Jesus, that's his day. It's like a bride's day, right? On their wedding day. It's not the groom's day. He's just, you know, there at a necessity. It's the bride's day, right? Nobody wants to ruin the bride's day. It's her special day. Nobody upstages the bride. That's why you have those bridesmaids dresses, right? To make sure that nobody upstages the bride, right? Big giant bow and, and you know, multicolored trail and that sort of thing, right? So they have all these things and, and they're wanting to, you know, put the focus on the bride and how special she is. Well, that's kind of Jesus. It's His day. And what this verse here says is that because of the trials that you go through, because of what you experience. On that day, when He meets us face to face, He says, it will result in praise and glory and honor. You see, your suffering and your willingness to go through suffering gives Jesus value. It doesn't add to His value. Please understand, He is an infinite value. But it, it shows to Jesus how much you value Him. Because the reality is you and I have choices. We can escape suffering if we wanted to. For example, troubled relationship, you can choose to fight and, and fight for the relationship, but that takes a lot of pain and sorrow and difficulty. Or you can just leave. Go find someone else. And just be all about your own happiness. Never once surrendering and suffering for, your, for others' sake. That's a choice you have. But every time you choose to suffer, you're effect choosing saying, Lord... I'd rather have you in this suffering than just have my own sake, my own pleasure. I'd rather walk with you than just look after me. And that esteems Him. So on that day, His special day, where all the glory belongs to Him, He turns to you and I and says, I thank you and I glory and I honor you for what you are willing to suffer for my sake. And for me, that humbles me. I'm thinking, okay, Lord, if you really want to do this, let's do this tomorrow. This is your day. And he says, no, no. I'm okay with myself. I'm secure in myself that I can share my day with you. And that's what he's wanting to do. 
So when we come to the verse here, we're fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may be glorified with Him. It's as a result of the sufferings that we're going through and trusting in Him that we are glorified with Him. Suddenly, Judgment Day looks a whole lot different now, doesn't it? It's not a scary time. It's something to look forward to. To be face to face and and hear those encouraging words from Jesus that He's proud of us. That He honors us. All simply because we trusted in Him. Because we relied upon Him. Not because of how hard we worked or what we did, but because of what He did in us. He goes on, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Think about that. You know, everyone has different degrees of suffering. But you think about Paul who's writing this. Paul is a man that knows suffering. I mean, he's been stoned to the point where they thought he was dead. He's been... Uh, you know, they had guys who swore a vow that they would, wouldn't rest until he died. They wouldn't eat till he died. And I imagine they all died first. He was shipwrecked a number of times. He was bitten by a poisonous snake. He was whipped within an inch of his life on three separate occasions. He had all kinds of health problems. He walked with a, like a bow-legged walk. His body was so marred, you didn't want to look at it. He had so much sufferings. And that's just on the physical side. He had people abandon him. People ridicule him. People disrespect him, reject him. And those are the Christians, by the way. Never mind the Judaizers who were out to kill him. And so he says, all those sufferings, they're not even close to what awaits us. And you know what? It makes it worth it. It's so worth it. As difficult as it is, what I get to experience is so worth it. Verse 19, For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Even creation wants to see you and I. Creation is longing to see Christianity. It's longing to see Jesus being expressed in us. Because then we're going to look after creation. Then we'll care for it. So it's a longing to see the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Who subjected creation to futility? Who was it? It was God. Remember the curse? He added toil, thorns and thistles to the ground. He made this world what it is, not because it wanted to be, but because of us. In hope that the creation itself would be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's waiting, it's longing for a new earth. Just like you want a new body, this earth wants a new earth. For we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. What a great illustration of that. The groans. I mean, you, you, someone told me that if you listen to nature, nature is in a minor key. Any musicians here? What's a minor key? 
A minor key is a very sad, very slow, very very somber sort of sound. A major key is you know uplifting, exciting. You want to make get you up and dance or anything. But you listen to the waves crashing in the on the water, or the sound you know of the wind going through the leaves. That's a very minor key, and it's almost like there's a a, a creation there groaning there. I don't know if that is the case or not, but it's interesting to me. But then you think about the earthquakes and the tornadoes and the tsunamis and the uh, the storms and, and all kinds of things that are going through. And these are simply the pains of childbirth. What happens in labor as you get closer and closer to the actual birth? It hurts. <laughs> then it hurts more and the contractions become more powerful and more and more frequent. So what can we expect to happen in terms of the storms and the earthquakes and the tornadoes and all the, the difficulties of this world? It's not going to get better. I mean, we can try to fix the climate and so forth. It doesn't matter. This world is moving towards more and more pain. And and not only this, not only is that true of the world, but also we ourselves. My body moves and croaks and groans as well, I think, at times. Because having the first fruits of the Spirit, our spirit is now clean and pure and justified. And, and our soul is in the process of experiencing that, but our body's looking forward to it as well. So even we ourselves groan within ourselves, awaiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons the redemption of our body. Waiting for this new glorified body to come. Because when that new body comes, what exits? Sin. Isn't that a good thought? Right? But until then, God has seen fit to leave it in there to drive us to Him, that we would trust in Him. So, just to go back one. So, adoption has a present aspect to it as well as a future aspect. Well, interesting. When we think of adoption, when we read adoption, we always think of somebody who's not your kid coming into your family is now your kid. But in the Roman times, adoption meant something else. How it would work is, is particularly if you were um, a landowner of some sort, if, when you had kids what you would do is your kid was under the slaves. That's why you would hire a slave, uh, what was called the paedagogos. That's what we read in Galatians chapter 4 about the, the tutor, the child guy. That was a paedagogos. And what, what he explains it in, in Galatians as well is that you know when that child is really young, they have all the rights as the landowner, but they're still under the control and dominion of a slave. And then the child would reach a certain age, what was called the toga virilis. You know, toga, which they, you know, toga, and virilis, kind of virility, that's where they got it from. And, and what it was is you would put on this toga to show that you've become a man now. And this, this ceremony, toga virilis, what it was doing, it was, it was announcing to everybody that this child is now my son. And what it was called was the adoption. So it wasn't that you you know you leave one family you join a new family it's now you kind of graduated within the family. And so what he's saying here is this idea that we're waiting eagerly for the adoption of the sons the redemption of our body when you and I get a new body we've graduated. We graduate from this body from this world and now Jesus is in our spirit experience we experience that in our soul and our body perfectly.
from that moment, now there is sinless perfection. And we eagerly await that. But it hasn't happened yet. We're still sons, but we're waiting for graduation day. Verse 24, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is not seen is not hope. Or hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? Right? It'd be like us right now, hoping that the Canadian women win hockey gold in the Olympics. Guess what? They've already done it. We don't need to hope for it anymore. It's a done deal. The men, however, is different. We haven't seen that yet. So yet, now we hope for it. Because who hopes for... You only hope for what's not seen. No, they haven't yet. Not yet. Not yet. That's hopefully on Sunday, right? So we haven't seen it yet. But the women have. So in hope, we have been saved... But that hope being this new glorified body. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. This idea again, perseverance. Notice the word hope here, perseverance. Remember Romans 5? The trials and tribulation brings about perseverance, brings about proven character, brings about hope, and hope doesn't disappoint because of love. All those same themes in the first few verses of chapter 5, he's returning to now. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we don't know how to pray as we should. How many people have discovered that? That we have no idea what we need to pray for. I mean, if it were up to me, I would be praying for an easy life. That everything would go right, everything would go my way, and I'd have no more problems in this world. But that's really not how we ought to pray. We ought to pray, Lord, you do what's necessary in my life. And if that involves trials and tribulations and difficulties, so be it. And so he doesn't he knows what we need. So for although we don't know how to pray as we should, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Well, what's that? What's the will of God? Verse twenty eight And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. That He's using everything. He's, he's, he's uh, conforming everything for our good. Notice it doesn't say that God's using all good things for our good. But He's using all things. The good, the bad, and the ugly. For our good to those who are called according to His purpose. Well, what's His purpose? What's the will of God that we just read here in verse 27? Well, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. Think back to the garden. How were Adam and Eve made? In the image of God, right? That was the plan. So that if creation ever wanted to see what God was like, who do they need to look to? Adam and Eve. And that let them know, that's the image of God. Okay, I understand that now. But then Adam and Eve blew it, right? They made a mess of things. Did that ruin God's plan? No. He's been working to rectify it ever since. And so his plan, that's all that predestined means, is that God had a plan from the get-go, and the plan is that you and I would be conformed to the image of His Son. So that if the world looked at the church, who would they see? Jesus. Now, you judge for yourself. When the world sees, sees the church, do they, do they see the flesh, 
Or do they see the Spirit? You judge for yourself. They ought to see this. But I wonder if they see this. It goes on, verse 30, And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who's against us? What a great line. If God loves me, if God's on my side, what does it matter that no one else does? Yet, that's not how we live. It's good that we've got God, but now I need someone else. I need my spouse. I need my kids. I need my friends. I need my co-workers. I need my church. I need them to love me too, because if they love me, then I'm okay. If God's for you, if God loves you, what else do you need? Jesus plus nothing. Yeah. He, speaking of God, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Again, it goes back to the nature of God as Abba. He's not withholding. He's wanting to give. He's wanting to love. Well, what does He want to give us? Because, you know, I haven't gotten that red shiny Ferrari in my driveway yet. Well, in Acts 17, it tells us He wants to give us life, breath, and all things. He wants to make us... Not that... And I think the truth for us as well. Nobody really, you know, needs or thinks they require $5 million in a $5 million home. If you're honest, you're not going to turn it down. Right? You know, no one's going to turn down that kind of a gift. But we're not looking for it. What we're looking for is really just to be content. To be satisfied in life. For some people, they think it's going to take $5 million in a $5 million home. But the reality is we're just looking to be content. Whether you're poor or you're uber rich, we're all looking for the same thing. It's what Solomon was talking about in the book of Ecclesiastes. He was just desperately looking to be content. And he says, I'm going to try and experiment for everything. Desperately looking for it. But he never got there. Because he was looking for it in the world. In his buildings, in his reputation, in, in women and concubines, and servants and singers and dancers and gardens and everything you can imagine. He, he couldn't find it. Because there's only one person that can get it. And he's not holding back. The problem is, I think, is what James says, you ask but for the wrong motives. You don't really want God, you just want God to be a means to something else. You want God to do what you want to do so that you could be happy and content with this person over here or in this relationship or in this this part of the world rather than just being solely content with God Himself. That's the wrong motives we ask for. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Think about that. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Can you imagine that? Other Christians, we do it all the time, right? To one another. Is that person saved and we're judging them, we're looking down upon them, we're being critical of them, or how good of a Christian they are? And yet... God is the one who justifies. 
Later on in, in Romans 14, Paul goes on and says, By the way, uh, don't judge one another because God is able to make that person stand. Who are you to judge the servant of another? He's the one who justifies. So who's the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather He was raised. Let's emphasize the fact that He was resurrected. That there's life. Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. It's interesting that He mentions that He's at the right hand of God. In Roman times, uh, the judge would sit and he'd have two clerks, two scribes, one on his right hand and one on his left hand. And when it came to pronounce judgment, one or the other would read the, clerk, read the, the judgment depending upon the outcome. And if you were condemned, the guy on the left would get up. And that was, that was bad news. But if you were acquitted or if you were approved, then the guy on the right hand would get up. And you were acquitted. You were let, let free. So when it says here that, that Jesus, He's at the right hand of God, what's that communicating about judgment? Anytime the guy on the right got up, it was always good news. He's the one that intercedes for us. He's the one that's, that's, um, that's made it possible. He's the mediator of this new covenant. So verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who can separate us from this love? It's, it's amazing how, um, in talking with Christians, how they, there's this belief that you can somehow lose your salvation. That you can somehow lose what you could never do in the first place to earn. I always thought that was interesting. It's a free gift, but if you don't do it enough, then we're going to take that gift away. That's not a gift, that's a demand. Yeah. But who will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. It's at this point, well, Christians say, well, you know, God won't turn His back on me, but I'll turn my back on Him. And I can jump out of His hand. Listen, if you ever try to jump out of God's hand, guess who's going to be jumping right with you? Jesus. Because nothing can separate you from His love. But you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've, how I've failed, how many times I've failed, who I've hurt. I, I could never be forgiven for that. Well, you don't know what God's done then. Remember the video we saw last night. His grace is all about what He's done, not what you've done. Well, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Will any of that do it? I mean, nowadays we might change it. Would it be our our income levels? Our health? The cities we live in? The church we go to? The clothes we wear? The job we have? Will any of that separate us from His love? No. Just as written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. What a great phrase. Overwhelmingly conquer. You know, the battle is not ours to fight. Our battle is to trust. That's why Paul says, I fought the good fight of faith. That's our battle. 
to trust Him to do it. And because He's doing it, we're overwhelmingly conquerors. It means it's, it's not even close. Through Him who loved us. For I am convinced. What does convinced mean? Is there any doubt in convinced? No, there's no wiggle room here. This is not for debate. It says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about that list. That list is absolutely inclusive. There's nothing outside that list, right? Neither death nor life, angels or principalities, things present or things to come, not your past, not your future, or any power, any height, any depth. And by the way, any other created thing. Who does that include, by the way? Yourself. Even you can't separate yourself from the love of God. Once you're His, you are His. Which is in Christ Jesus already. It comes back to that theme again, right? Remember in Romans 5, 11 times in those 21 verses, through Him, through Jesus Christ, He ends it on that. And that's the end of chapter 8. What I like to do is, is open this time up now to just general questions that anyone has about what we've talked about. and um, I mean, I, I hope you've been able to kind of see the flow and the logic of it. In your notes there, you know, after this passage here, what I try to do is include just a, a brief summary of each of the sections. Because he's kind of laid it out. He had a journey. And, and he opened up in, in chapter 5 all about you know, transitioning from what we have now of being saved and what we can glory in, and that included tribulation. So he had to explain that. And he could explain that we can glory in our tribulations because God loves you. He's not out to get you. He's not punishing you. That's why there's no wrath anymore. Instead, in the tribulations, we're being saved by His life. And he explains now the exchange that took place of being in Adam and being in Christ. What it really means is the result of this justification, which then brought up the question, well, if I'm really truly saved only by what He's done, then should I just go and sin? Well, God forbid. Don't you know what happened on the cross? Has nobody told you that you died on that cross? That sinner was crucified and buried and gone, and now God raised up a new creation with Christ in Him. And instead of sinning, now you get to not sin. You're freed from the power of sin. You get to now be an instrument of righteousness because you're not under law but under grace. Well, if I'm not under law, then what's preventing me from sinning? Is there no consequences? Oh, there are. There are still consequences, but not with God. His love is not up up for question anymore. It's settled. You're approved. You're righteous. You're holy. But if you sin, you'll experience the wages of sin. It's death, despair, frustration, misery, turmoil, problems. But what about the law? What was the purpose of the law? Well, we were set free from the law because all the law does is stir up sin. That was its role. That's its purpose. And if you and I try to live by the law, if we try to go on that way, then you'll fail. You'll be miserable. Paul tried it, ended up not doing what he wanted to do, did the very thing he didn't want to do. But praise be to God. God set him free from that law because there's, instead of fighting sin in his own strength, he can trust Jesus to overcome sin himself now.
And when that happens, now the very desire which was the law, which was to love people, begins to be expressed. As long as he's trusting Jesus to live in him. And not trusting in his own resources. And so God gives life to us. He expresses his life through us. And not only that, we get to be children of God. Sons of God. That even though we're going through trials and tribulations, that brings honor to God because we're willing to trust God in those trials and tribulations. But it's only momentary because what awaits us is more than just heaven. It awaits us as a new earth and new bodies. But until we get there, God knows what He's doing. He loves you. He's working in your life. He's bringing you to where you need to be. And nothing can separate you from that love. That's the synopsis of what Paul's trying to walk us through in a very logical, step-by-step process in Romans 5-8. to And it is, as many have called, the heart of the gospel. Where if, if you've understood and really appreciated Romans 5-8, through then you have a good chance at walking in victory. It's not the only thing that needs to be taught. There's lots of other things in the Bible, but Romans 5-8 to is really the core of what it means to be a new covenant Christian. So any questions? I find it interesting that the all things in verse 32 and all things in verse 28, you know, on the one hand, all things work together for good and God gives us all things in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. Everything I need for life and godliness. Nothing really bad in the long haul. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's also momentary. It doesn't feel momentary, but it is momentary. Um, no questions? Alright, let me leave you with a, a benediction. That um, This section really kind of comes to a close uh, at the end of chapter 11. And beginning of chapter 12, Paul then starts to apply it in a, in a practical manner. And, you know, you think about chapter 12, how it begins. It's, it begins off with an idea of us being a living sacrifice. Us living, living a life surrendered to Him. But, but I love how he ends it in verse, uh, verse 36 of chapter 11. A real short benediction, but it's so powerful. It says, For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. Right? Think about what we need. We need life. We need righteousness. We need love. Well, it's all from Him. And it's all through Him. And it's all to Him. So to Him be the glory forever. Amen. He's the one to be glorified. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank Jesus. We thank the Holy Spirit for what You have done. And we glory in You. We celebrate You for the tremendous heart You have for us. For what You've given up for us. We have been rescued from this domain of darkness, from being in Adam, from being alone, from living in death, to now experiencing life in You. And You now reside, live inside of us. And You want to live through us, Father. Step by step, each and every day, as we turn to You. So as we leave here today, Father, I pray that You would encourage us. You would bless us with the reminder of the things that we've talked about here today at appropriate times. You bring it to our minds and we just be able to, to trust You in the moments, especially the dark ones.
In your name we pray. Amen. I would encourage you um, when you go home over the next couple days, particularly in the next couple days rather than waiting a long time, but go home and read through Romans 5-8 to now again. Based on what we've talked about and what we've said, and you might look at your notes and so forth, but read through it again. And again, just watch the, the flow. Just go through what Paul's trying to say here and really let it sink in because so much of what he's saying is because it's precept upon precept is based on the context of it. And I think as you go through it now, you'll really get a heart of what Paul's trying to say in a, in a big picture kind of way. So I'd recommend you to do that.